Um, hang on, hang on. I'm just, thanks, buddy. I've just had a little a kid run in. So, reminding me of my role as a velociraptor. Um, Living the Dream acknowledges the traditional owners of the land it is recorded on, especially the Jagera and Turrbal peoples, elders past, present and future, and their continuing struggles for justice and self-determination. Living the Dream is an irregularly published anti-capitalist podcast from Brisbane. Yep. Hi everybody, you're listening to Living the Dream and we've got a very exciting episode today though already plagued with some technical issues. So I'm here, my name's Dave Eden, you can follow me on Twitter at with Sober Senses. John, you're joining us today, how's things? Look pretty good, yeah, yeah it's as, a, as good as things are all surviving. for the time of the coronavirus. And we're, we're all surviving. We're we've all got a very special guest today, we're joined yeah, well, by yeah. um, Anthony O'Donnell. Anthony, how are you? I'm well, thank you. Anthony, thank you for having me on. John, John and I are really glad that you have made the time to join us today because I think we've been involved in a series of, I guess, debates and discussions um, that I think you'll really be able to shine some light on. But maybe to start off, would you mind just uh, telling our listeners who you are and your various claims to fame? Look, I'm a senior lecturer at La Trobe University in the northern suburbs of Melbourne. Um, my disciplinary background is labour law, but I have a great interest in social security law as well. Um, and my most recent book is a book called Inventing Unemployment, which is subtitled Regulating Joblessness in 20th Century Australia, which was published by um, Hart Bloomsbury at the end of last year. Um, and I chose this wonderful image of um, for the front dust jacket of men lining up for sustenance payments on Circular Quay in 1931. Um, and when I chose that at the beginning of last year, and then I saw the pictures of people lining up around the block for Centrelink, I didn't realise how prescient that was going to be. Yeah, because what are, what are the estimates at the moment of the level of unemployment yeah, that we're facing yeah. in Australia this year? Well, 10%, the- is it? I think some people are estimating 10%. The problem is that the figures that were released last week related to the first week in March when the Labor Force survey was administered. So that was before the the lockdown provisions went in. Um, And so they they showed that basically things were basically unchanged. We were still sitting around 5% unemployment. So the figures that are released in May will relate to early April. That will give us a better picture. But I think even... The June figures relating to the May period will also show an increase um, as more people are stood down. And once you've been stood down for four weeks prior to the survey, my understanding is that then you'll be counted as unemployed rather than employed. So I think we're going to see a slow burn here in terms of, in terms of the official labour force figures. I think this raises an interesting question because... When I was uh, reading um, the material in your book, one of the things that really struck me, which is a thing that I know but I forget, is that often when we think about unemployment numbers, we think it's just a very simple technical count, isn't it? You know, there's someone in a job, they're employed. Someone doesn't have a job, they're, unemplo- they're unemployed. But there's a real complexity in politics to who gets counted and who doesn't get counted, isn't there? Look, there is. I suppose the starting point of my book is that before we can 
count things, we need to categorise them. And sure, our numbers often add up, but our categories are essentially made up. And so the book's point is to tell the story of how we've made up the category of unemployment across the 20th century. And I suppose to go to the top of the arc of the story, in the late 40s, we settled on a kind of definition of unemployment that was... um, that involved a regulatory two-step, as it were. Let's separate people in work from those out of work, and then looking at those out of work, let's decide who really wants to work as opposed to those who are just merely idle. Now, each of those steps is incredibly fraught because often labour markets aren't organised in a way where it's really easy to make that distinction first between who's in work and who's out of work, i.e. some people are in intermittent work, casual work, complex contracting arrangements and so on. And then that second step, there's no inherent um, level of desire for work that separates the unemployed person from the merely jobless person. Um, So you're having to ask all sorts of questions like, well, you want to work? What type of work do you want? At your normal job? At your old job? At any job? Do you want to scab at a factory where there's strike action afoot and so on. So all those questions had to be worked through as well. But by the early 60s, we came up with the definition of unemployment that we still use in our labour force surveys. It's an international standard um, and we hang on to it. And the other thing I picked up from your book as well is that kind of tied to the definition of unemployment then is the argument if you can access welfare payments and then a paranoia too about maintaining work discipline as well wasn't you know if unemployment is too low or welfare payments are too generous there seemed to be this real concern that this would lead to you know following similar to you know Kalecki's argument made it at about the same time that this would lead to a breakdown in work discipline so the category of unemployment has always been linked it seems from looking at your book to uh, keeping people uh, Willing, willing to work and willing to work relatively hard. I think that's right. And what what emerged in the second half of the 1940s was, as I said, that statistical definition, which we still hang on to. And as I said, that was an international standard that was promulgated by the ILO's um, International Conference on Labor Statistics. But around the same time, Australia, for the first time, did instigate an unemployment benefit system, which commenced in 1945. And the, the criteria for eligibility was, again, that you must be unemployed, that is, out of work, and taking reasonable steps to find suitable work. So it looks a lot like the statistical definition, and that involves that, again, that kind of, as I said, that two-step are you in work or out of work? And if you're if you're out of work, are you desiring work? And we'll use the search for work as a proxy for your desire to work. But I think you're right. They came from two different traditions, if you like. And that eligibility criteria for unemployment benefit comes from a long tradition of not wanting to give money to people who just don't want to work. It's what economists call moral hazard. And it comes from an insurance tradition. Um, If you take out fire insurance on your house, we're not going to pay you out if you burn your own house down. So it's like, well, if you're responsible in some way for your own joblessness, 
we're not going to give you a benefit. So, um, of course, it's very hard to make the distinction about when someone's responsible for their joblessness and when it's due to quite impersonal economic forces. And it's that constant negotiation, along with the moral panic that you mention, um, that has really driven the evolution of how we administer unemployment benefit, such that eligibility for what, you know, since the other week's been called job seeker allowance, really has diverged markedly from the labour force survey definition of unemployment. That's really interesting. I've noticed as well that the kind of um, cretins of the Australian right on Sky News and the like have been remobilising that argument of moral hazard when the job seeker payment was doubled. You know that so you have these um, you know kind of P grade identities that are on uh, Sky TV uh, pulling that discourse back up, worried about how this increase in payment will sap the moral will of um, of the Australian working class. John, was there something you wanted to jump in and and contribute? Yeah, well, I mean, it's more kind of like a I guess framing question, which is to really to think about. So we're talking about these definitions of unemployment and how they were developed. But I guess what we need to do as well is to think about this idea of full employment, which is the backdrop in which uh, this whole discussion is happening. So maybe if Anthony, you could give a brief overview of what, why, did, where did full employment come from? Why was why was it such a concern about full employment in the post, in the immediate post-war era and kind of during the war as well, I suppose? And yeah, just to give us a bit of an overview of why we're even talking about unemployment in the context of full employment because to most of us full employment yeah sure so i've been mentioning the second half of the 40s is important in terms of both developing an international standard around the statistical measure of unemployment and also in australia in terms of instigating an unemployment benefit system for the first time but of course that period does coincide as you said with a government commitment to the policy of full employment. Um, so it's kind of paradoxical that we started settling on really quite coherent and relatively sophisticated definitions of unemployment at the same time as the government was a re- committed to eradicating it. And in fact, there weren't that many unemployed people around if we accept those definitions. So this has got to be seen in a global context In the 40s, Australia and its wartime allies, the United Kingdom, the United States, Canada, all made a similar type of commitment to sustaining full employment, and that commitment was made in one form or another. And that can basically be seen, I think, as a response, first of all, to the 1930s Depression, but also the 1920s weren't stellar in terms of the labour market outcomes. There was a lot of joblessness due to casual and intermittent work. So there was an idea that we didn't want to go back to the 20s and 30s experience. Um, And partly that was also a sense that, that the social dislocation that was caused by widespread joblessness had probably driven the rise of fascism on the one hand and the attractions of Bolshevism on the other. So perhaps full employment was a way to buy social peace. Now, of course, once the war came, we got full employment. There was a hell of a lot of work to do. Um, We had full employment, but 
people faced a whole host of other privations and sacrifices. So again, it was a way, making the commitment was a way to say to the population, hey, I know this is tough, you're making sacrifices, but this is going to be worth it. When we come out at the end of this, it's not going to be business as usual. We're going to come out to a better place. So as part of a what we call a post-war reconstruction project, and post-war reconstruction isn't something that began in September 1945 when hostilities ended. Politicians began talking about it four or five years earlier. Um, and that was savvy, and it was savvy from a planning perspective. You want to be able to hit the ground running when the war does end. But as I said, it was also savvy from a political perspective. You know, this is all going to be worthwhile. And the other element that I should throw in is in the second half of the 30s, the English economist John Maynard Keynes published his general theory and he put forward the idea that governments can actually manage aggregate demand in a way to deliver full employment. So there was a sense by 1944-45 that not only is full employment something we should do, it's something we can do. We now have the tools to do that. Um, and there was just one final minor point about the domestic politics in Australia of full employment that Tim Rouse has drawn attention to. And that was the idea that during the war, the ALP government gave, in terms of hiring for government enterprises, gave preference to trade union members. And in terms of its procurement policies for the war, it gave preference to unionised enterprises. Now, the ACTU hoped that that could become a permanent feature of the post-war economy, preference for trade unionists. But the ALP had actually made the commitment that for seven years following the end of hostilities, preference in employment would be given to return servicemen. So that put them on a bit of a collision course with the ACTU. One way of resolving that was for the government to say, look, the preference issue at the end of the day doesn't matter. We'll just make sure there's jobs for everyone. So there won't be a question of whether the return serviceman gets preference as opposed to the trade unionist who stayed at home on the home front in an essential industry. There'll be jobs for all. So there was an imperative to table um, some sort of commitment by way of a white paper to full employment before the government introduced their re-establishment and employment bill, which was the legislation that was going to give preference to return servicemen. Anthony, this is super interesting, and I think uh, what this taps into is a debate that is actually happening in in Australia, and let's say the Australian left at the moment. And I think um, John and I did a show about a, over a year ago on Sally McManus's book on fairness, where we kind of took issue with a, a point that she makes, and so she makes this claim that this white paper is written, and that this white paper then guides policy, and then it's because of this policy that we get full unemployment. So there's a clear link between good ideas, good policy, good economic result. Would you be able to uh, explain to us what the white paper actually says? What kind of policy um, it does it lead to? And how much can we attribute the kind of boom conditions that generate full unemployment post Second World War to this policy? Obviously, because this is immediately applicable to how people are thinking we should respond right now facing the current crisis that we do. Okay, 
ask me an easy one next time, Dave. But I think there's a, a large economic historiography on this, which I can only touch on. But the, the white paper went through about eight drafts um, and it was initially drafted by Nugget Coombs, who went on to become governor of the Reserve Bank and a quite influential figure in post-war public service and two other guys, Jim Nimmo and Jared Firth. And it started, I saw the first draft, it was about 70 pages, which is three times as long as the as the final one. It was very technical. Um, it gave all sorts of projections and um, monetary figures. And interestingly, it stated a quantitative figure for full employment, which said that basically they wanted to keep unemployment below a maximum of 5%. So they were looking around 4 to 5% as full employment. Now, as I said, it went through about eight drafts. It was circulated to other Commonwealth departments. It went out to some economists. And, of course, it went to the politicians in Cabinet. So over that time, there were a lot of compromises. Um, and ultimately, the politicians, they didn't want an economic seminar paper, which is how it kind of initially presented, they wanted a manifesto around which they could rally civilian morale. So a lot of the technical stuff went. Um, the first drafts were very focused on the transition from war to peace, whereas the latter drafts became focused on, well, maintaining full employment in a post-war economy. Um, and What happened was, with all these compromises, it basically, as I, mean, I mentioned Maynard Keynes's um, general theory before, that was incredibly influential on a generation of young economists who then went into the Commonwealth Public Service during the war. Coombs is very upfront about the influence of Keynes, but, you know, Keynesianism, you know, is a bit like coffee, there's strong versions and mild versions. And I think ultimately what ended up in the white paper was a mild version of Keynesianism in that um, it was basically just... Well, I suppose, look, Keynesianism was important because up until then, people thought we should run national budgets in the same way we run household budgets. When the going gets tough, you tighten your belt, when the good times come, you spend up. And Keynes's response was, well, no, it's the exact opposite. You should do the opposite. Now, that was quite important because it overthrew the orthodoxy by which we had approached the Great Depression in the early 30s. Um, but how you follow that through in terms of policy is quite complex. So I think ultimately the White Paper said... Look, ideally, the sources of instability that lead to unemployment, the main ones are um, fluctuations in private capital expenditure, um, fluctuations in international expenditure, and fluctuations in public capital expenditure. And if you look at the final draft, it basically just threw up its hands and said, there's nothing we can do about the first two. So we'll concentrate on the third. So basically just put forward a very modest program of counter-cyclical government spending while recognising that that couldn't be the whole story. Whereas if you look at something like um, William Beveridge's book that was published 
around the same time, full employment in a free society, he sees the Keynesian theory as a reason for almost building a total command and control economy. Okay, let's nationalise monopoly industries. Let's have a say over where they're located. Let's control international capital flows and so on and so forth. But gradually, the white paper in Australia was really whittled back, as I said, to this quite modest proposal. And even earlier drafts when it talked about public capital expenditure mentioned things like maybe we should have a investment board or a planning council. Even they were excised from the final draft. Both Coombs, I think, and definitely the government, including John Curtin, the Prime Minister, just didn't want to scare the horses. They didn't want to scare business and they didn't want to give fuel to the opposition conservatives. Yeah, no, that's that's really fascinating, Anthony. Thank you. I mean, the other thing, just kind of thinking at the end there, is is this, they're scared of the horse. They're scared. Don't want to scare the horses. I'm, I'm, the other thing, of course, is you know you mentioned the global nature of this, and, and the Cold War is really important here, right? The onset of the Cold War and the fact that all over the world, in this immediate kind of during the war and the immediate post-war era, the Communist Party is very very significant and reaches its highest level of membership, of course, in Australia in 1944. And commands are, depending on statistics, anywhere between 40% to 60% of trade union allegiance, basically through uh, communist heads of trade unions. So there's that other, uh, they don't want to scare the opposition, but they also kind of um, don't want to adopt any sort of uh, overtly left-wing policies that might be seen as appeasing the Communist Party or might give the Communist Party sort of <laughs> uh, hope that they could extend on that, right? Do you think, how much I'd, do you think I'd, that, that might have Leaving the Communist Party aside, there were definitely left-wing ALP members who saw this as a lost opportunity. What they wanted was a manifesto that set out a whole new way of economic management, whereas Coombs and Curtin were more interested in saying, how can we just take the present system and make it work a bit better? So I think one Labour backbench equipped you know they call it a white paper well it's definitely not a red paper is it and so people did want more talk about well if you want to control if if private um, capital expenditure is so important how do we control that nationalize some industries and so on Um, so there was a sense that it was a missed opportunity but this also going back I suppose to Dave's other question relating to Sally's point, what was the ultimate effect of this, I would tend towards the idea that despite its modest prescriptions that governments should engage in counter-cyclical public capital investment, that never really arose because you'd had a decade of recession where households didn't really spend much You then had a full employment war economy where wages were actually quite good. Um, Married women who would normally not join the labour force were in the labour force in great droves and getting wages at near parity rates with men. So households were incredibly cashed up, but there was rationing, there was a moratorium on construction, no consumer durables were being uh, manufactured because everything had been... um, directed towards wartime production. At the end of that period, once those restrictions were lifted, the economy just came out of the starting blocks gangbusters. So I don't think 
for three decades, an Australian government really had to turn itself or turn its attention to that the central problem put by the white paper, which is how do we manage aggregate demand in a way to ensure full employment? The demand was there, and what they did have to turn their attention to was all the problems that come with that and the risks, and the risks had been identified way back. You know, there are risks that come with full employment, um, and we've got to know how to deal with them, and that's really what the next three decades were about in terms of government policy. So I, I think, like you, I'm probably a bit sceptical of Sally's narrative that the government actually had its hands on the levers to ensure full employment. I think it happened more by circumstance than design. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I'll let Dave speak soon, but you know, I just wanted to. Um, people like when I when I talk about this, I put it on Twitter and was like, kind of, what did they actually do? People were like, oh, well, the Snowy Hydro scheme. People were like, well, the Snowy Hydro scheme is an example of, of government sort of coming in and saying, you know, well, we're going to, you know, uh, invest all this money and get all these workers employed. And, 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 and that's how we're going to, you know, that that's their version of basically like a job guarantee that people talk about is, you know, the government was strategically investing um, in national uh, projects effectively. Um, but I think my kind of view on that would be that basically that was more to do with kind of nation building as a, as a, and more to do with sort of this whole populate or perish narrative whereby we were starting to get significant numbers of new workers, not just having, not really worrying about our unemployment rates amongst the white Anglo workers, but we actually need to get sufficiently white or at least white enough Europeans to come over and fill up the economy. So there's almost this, the opposite is actually seemingly what, 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 what the, what they're concerned about, the, the opposite of unemployment. It's, you know, the fact I think you're right. Like I workers. mentioned, the problem became managing the risks associated with full employment. And I suppose the main risk with a full employment economy is that workers get uppity. And they, they get uppity in several ways. One would be a rise in union militancy, which leads to, you know, wage growth, which can then lead to wage growth inflation. Um, and so if you look at the Arbitration Commission's decisions on the basic wage throughout the 50s and early 60s, they are totally obsessed with the spectre of inflation. So there's that. But the other issue goes to yours, John, is that domestic workers in a full employment economy will turn up their nose at uncongenial, dirty and dangerous jobs. And that also includes... Um, jobs in you know remote area infrastructure so as early as about 1947 the government was tearing its hair out because there were labor shortages in steel industry coal mining textiles and in remote area infrastructure like the tasmanian hydroelectric scheme or the kalgoorlie pipeline and so on and then the third way i think that workers can be uppity is just in high turnover that workers realize that a, that it's a seller's market the labor market in a full employment economy so workers realize that they're probably more important to any particular employer than that employer is important to them and if they don't like it they can walk out the factory gate go down the road and get as good or better job 
somewhere else. So again, um, there was high turnover and employers had to respond to that by coming up with personnel policies. It wasn't just about recruiting workers, it was retaining them. And so they had to kind of come up with policies to say, hey, stick with us and, you know, it'll be good. There's a career path. There's benefits to the crew with length of service and so on. But the other thing you mentioned, John, you alluded to was, of course, the immigration scheme. And so the other thing going on in this period we're talking about is this massive post-war immigration uh, scheme. And... I think that was really important in addressing some of the issues the government faced with a full employment economy. As I was saying, I don't think they were, you know, creating infrastructure schemes for the purposes of creating full employment. We already had over full employment. The problem then became how do we resource these infrastructure schemes with adequate manpower? And ultimately we did that through an immigration scheme. And that also I think addressed for some employers, the turnover system uh, or the, ter- the problem of turnover in that uh, by the 50s, you had representatives of major um, automotive firms, manufacturing firms, resource extraction companies sitting on tripartite bodies that advised the government on immigration intake. And basically, BHP could go to the government and say, we've got all these jobs that need to be done down in Wollongong. Can you give us a shipload of Southern Italians? They get their shipload of Southern Italians. Within nine to 12 months, those Italian workers realise this is shite work. We can get better work somewhere else. BHP's response, go back to the government. Can we have another shipload of Southern Italians? So a lot of companies actually predicated their industrial strategy on high turnover, but knowing that it could be mitigated through a steady influx of migrant workers. Look, that, that's fa- that's fascinating. Um, we have, the, our, you might not know, but our um, I lived in Wollongong for about eight years and uh, the, our show has a bit of a following in Wollongong as well amongst friends and comrades there. And you can definitely see how the city has been shaped by these patterns of migration and struggle and the domination of BHP and the like. It's interesting to hear some of that history about BHP's role in it. And then, of course, how the workers responded to and didn't just accept that discipline. But I'd like to um, pull back just to ask a specific question about the white paper. So there's a claim um, I often encounter, both in um, McManus's book on fairness, but also just in the general left debates, that the white paper called for something that we would understand today as a jobs guarantee that if unemployment rose that it would be compensated by direct public employment for the purposes of reaching full unemployment and then something like this was put into practice until the fall of the whitlam government is there any truth to those two claims look i've got a text of the paper in front of me but i'm not about to go through it to see um whether that's there that's offhand that's not my understanding like i said The main point of the paper was a fairly modest counter-cyclical public expenditure program. Um, As I said, it was was a mild or weak form of Keynesianism. It wasn't particularly command and control with regard to private expenditure or particularly private capital expenditure or with international expenditure. Um, It did drop, they did drop, I mentioned earlier 
that 5% target in the early draft, that was dropped. And the final paper talks about a high and stable level of unemployment. Uh, and I think it uses the phrase, a labour market that tends towards a shortage of men rather than a shortage of jobs, which is a much more ambivalent or poetic way of, of putting the target. But I I don't know about whether there's an express commitment to what we would now call a jobs guarantee. And do we see anything like a jobs guarantee in policy? Do we see the state hiring people specifically for the purpose of reducing unemployment? No, as I said, I think, you know, the pent-up demand as we came out of the war meant that the government really didn't have to do much. Now, it definitely did have these nation-building aspirations, which explains some of the big infrastructure projects. But as I said, there's a massive pent-up demand for housing, for consumer durables, and so on. And the government had to manage that in some way. So you see the rise, for instance, of the state housing commissions um, to make you know, massive housing estates that would then service this absolutely booming manufacturing um, economy. So in Melbourne, you know, you think of the houses that were built basically to service the Broadmeadows factory um, of Ford or the Doveton factory of GMH. Um, So the government was intervening in the economy, but as I said, the central problem envisaged by the white paper that the government would have to manage aggregate demand through counter-cyclical spending that didn't arise. I'm not saying we didn't have an interventionist government. Um, We definitely did. And the range of government enterprise was, of course, a lot more than it is today. Yeah, no, that's that's really fascinating. Um, I'm thinking as well, like, kind of about, obviously there's this, the the problem of, it goes from a problem of need, of, of, of having too many, workers not having enough and an interesting part about your book is you do talk about the way that you know that women obviously are excluded from these employment figures in a lot of interesting ways in fact i noted at one point reading that in fact one of the versions of the white paper had a lower rate of female unemployment i believe something like two percent uh, even lower than the expected male level but that's not because only two percent of all the whole women will be unemployed it would be um, because most women were not considered part of the workforce. And it's interesting, I guess. Um, I might have misunderstood that, I'm not sure. But um, it's quite interesting that a lot of the fact that they need these workers is, you know, that women who were performing this labour during World War Two are not performing it in the same way, you know, that there's this kind of promise, this um, promise um, the, uh, at the end of World War Two that, that women should go back to the home into... Um, these into this new post-war economy of, as you say, all these consumer durables, of um, a new way of life which would be more democratic, which would have more equality within the relationship, but in the end it would be women going back into a kind of homemaker role. So a lot of the fact that we need more workers and the fact that you know they want to import, as you say, more workers um, is because, is, is it, I, I venture, and I'm not sure how accurate this is, but that women are increasingly excluded from the labour market um, uh, after World War Two, that kind of brief period in World War Two in which they were. Yeah, as I mentioned earlier, it was quite remarkable that women's basic wage up until World War Two, I think, was around something like fifty-four percent of the male basic wage, and so during the war they yeah, got anything the between rate. sixty yeah. to a hundred percent of the male rate, depending on um, 
various factors, but that was a very progressive thing. Um, but I suppose it's an example of what Scott Morrison will now call, you know, snapback. Um, once the crisis is over, you know, you're not going to hang on to that progressive thing in the same way that we might not hang on now to uh, to free childcare and a much more generous job seeker allowance. But that's another issue. But I think I think you're right. When I hear, and I, I mean, I haven't read Sally's book, but I'm cautious about using the nostrum of full employment as something to organise current policy around, because the full employment that was envisaged by the drafters of the White Paper in 1945 was as much a social or cultural concept as it was a macroeconomic one. And it did envisage, yes, look, men will leave school at 16, um, they'll easily find work and they'll stay in steady employment with a relatively stable occupational identity for the next 50 years. Women will leave school at, you know, 15 or 16. They will easily find employment until they get married and then they'll devote themselves full-time to housewifery and, and mothering and there were few sanctioned reversals. It wasn't like, oh, I think I'll go back to education and learn something new or, oh, I think I'll take some time out of the labour market, look after my kids and then return, okay? Now, I just don't think that's a social model that any progressive person in Australia, you know, is going to be happy with. Um, so I think you're right. There's a lot embedded in the 1945 idea of full employment that goes beyond the simple um, economics yeah, look, you've just smuggled in there something I'm very interested in, which is kind of a critique of full employment as a progressive goal. You know, I would say that those of us that are a bit more ultra kind of imagine a future at some point where we're kind of free of of work. What do do you see that as as part of the problem with the idea of full employment that it may it has a goal of getting people at work that that disciplining people in in work where actually there's often a resistance to work and people desire a life that is more than work look i think you're right this has obviously been a debate on the left for a hundred years or more are we fighting for more work are we fighting for less work are we looking for full employment or are we looking for the for the liberation from work um and it plays it out you know these debates play out as i said over a hundred years um, look, I don't necessarily have a particular line on that. Um, you know, what do we talk about now? Fully automated luxury communism and a UBI have gained, those ideas have gained traction now that I think is actually quite interesting. When I first started working in the social policy area 25 years ago, if you said you're in favour of the UBI, um, people would look at you as though you were a bit of a crank, whereas now it's almost become mainstream. Now, I have problems with it, um, but the fact that it's burgeoning as a policy idea is, I think, really interesting. Um, yeah, that's, I suppose, I'd also... I suppose my other, my other caveat with full employment as a policy goal, recognising the kind of social and cultural concerns I have about its, its historically gendered nature and so on would be that even as a macroeconomic concept it tends to excessively privilege the headline unemployment rate uh, so you know as i said prior to the pandemic we we're trending for quite a while around five percent unemployment 
um, you know, what happens if we brought that down to 4.5 or 4% unemployment even, that would be looking good. But if at the same time underemployment went up above 10% and the level of casual and precarious work didn't decrease or even increased, again, I'm thinking, well, is that an outcome that progressive people would actually be happy with? So um, I suppose I'm saying that either we have to come to a very nuanced idea of full employment or we actually just do abandon the phrase altogether in search of better descriptors of what we really want. How do we factor in kind of considerations of working hours then? You know that during that post-war period of full employment, was there a strict idea of the eight-hour day, you know, eight-hour leisure, eight-hour rest? Was was that built into the idea of full employment? Or was there some kind of flexibility in just how many hours people were doing? Because that then links into your more contemporary point that some people today seem to suffer from too much work while other people are employed and they can't get enough hours. Yeah, look, there's often a lot of criticism about our statistical measure of unemployment on the grounds that, you know, if you've worked for more than one hour in the reference week, you're not you count as employed rather than unemployed. Um, if you've worked for less than one hour and you've looked for work, you'll be counted as unemployed. Okay, so this is continually people say, oh, you know, this fudges the statistics. No, no, no. Look, I don't necessarily have a problem with our measure of unemployment because it's quite transparent. It says what it it does what it says on the box. Um, But it's true that it was formulated, as I said, as an international standard in the late 40s and it's been adopted in Australia for our labour force survey since the early 60s. At that time, if you're in employment, you would have been in full-time employment 40 hours a week. If you weren't in full-time employment, the chances are you weren't in any employment. We just didn't have a significant part-time labour market. So they were the dichotomies, full-time work or no work. Now, of course, what we do know is over the past three decades or so, we've actually developed a massive part-time labour market, one of the um, largest in of any OECD country. And compared, say, to the Netherlands, which tracks us in terms of part-time work, our part-time work tends to be kind of short hours work. It's not a lot of people working four days a week. It might be a lot of people working two and a half days a week. So there is this legitimate fear today that there are significant numbers of people in part-time work who don't have the amount of work they need or desire. Okay. Now, I think that's a legitimate concern. Rather than trash the unemployment statistic, I think we need to just have a measure of that phenomenon, and we do, and it's called the underemployment rate, and the ABS publishes that every month along with the unemployment rate, okay? And then they also publish stuff on what we call discouraged workers, people who want work and are out of work but aren't looking for work because they don't believe the work's out there. So we can actually aggregate the statistics today and come up with what statisticians call the labour market underutilisation rate, which gives us, I think, a much better idea than the headline unemployment rate about the extent to which the economy is succeeding or failing to produce work for those who want it. Yeah, 
Um, that's fascinating. What, 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 what I, I'm thinking of at the moment as well about how, like you talk about how unemployment was kind of measured, and I think that's really interesting that that's changed a lot over, over time, but also kind of what people had to do in order to qualify for unemployment seems to be incredibly emotional and moral. And why I'm particularly interested in this because there's this idea that kind of prior to, say, the mid-20 the to, uh, to the welfare state, there was an idea of, of there being the two types of poor people, the deserving and the undeserving, right? And then that kind of returns in the era of neoliberalism from the 1970s onwards, where you have the, um, you know, the big you have privatised employment agencies, you have work for the doll, you have all these other sorts of things that require people to basically work for not very much money and work for free. But what, what's interesting is that even in this so-called period even in this period of full employment even in this period of the um of the of the high point of the welfare state workers are still expected to be performing all sorts of different things work unemployed people are still expected to jump through all sorts of hoops to get access to this benefit so it's interesting you know that we kind of blame neoliberalism for the onset of these sorts of re requirements but from your book it seems that actually yeah this i is think on a you're right i mean the australian unemployment benefit system was born conditional in 1944 and it stayed conditional it's just that the conditionality has become particularly in the last um, couple of decades increasingly punitive uh, but you're right it was there in that original definition of eligibility that I spoke about earlier you know you must be unemployed and taking reasonable steps to find suitable work there was an activity requirement there from the word go and as I trace in my book there were moral panic panics even in the full employment period before we hit recession in the mid-70s and before neoliberalism took hold there's examples of people worrying about oh there's those bloody surfies who've gone down to Torquay and they're drawing the dole or those bloody hippies sitting around in the inner city um, drawing the dole and this is partly related to again the problems of a full employment economy you could get your shipload of Italians in to do your dirty work but at the same time if you could make your unemployed make their benefit uh, conditional upon them being both occupationally and geographically mobile that gave you another labor source for um, for this boom period so if you like the idea that someone could sit around in the full employment economy and draw the dole rather than present themselves for work was seen as anathema whereas now it's if someone sits around in a recessionary economy and draws the dole when we're trying to keep a cap on budgets that's also anathema so you know full employment economy think people are slacking off tighten the screws when do we get the concept of the dole bludger well that um, I think it was first coined um, in possibly 71, 72. Again, before the oil shock had sent us into recession. So as I say in my book, it's a pathology of a full employment economy before it becomes a pathology of a recessionary or low employment economy. But as I said, even before then, I think in the late 60s, there were... Um, the Department of Social Services was sending out missives to administrators, you know, again... The two examples I mentioned: beware the surfy and beware the hippie. You so know, this is just youth. Double check them. 
So this is like the the youth of the working and middle classes who are breaking with work discipline on the back of no longer feeling that um, having to fight and hunt for a job is a real pressure in their lives. Exactly. So as I mentioned, this idea of um, the problems with the full employment economy is that workers get uppity. And again, that's another manifestation of it. So there's this idea there does have to be a pool of hungry, unemployed people snapping at workers' heels such that the workers will, you know, buckle down and and do the job. And, I mean, the Marx in turn is reserve army of labour. But quite mainstream economists recognise this and for the last few decades they've been talking about something called the NIRU, which is the non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment. We want to bring unemployment down, but not down so much that the workers get uppity and start demanding wage rises or slacking off or becoming too militant. Again, for a long time it was thought to be in Australia around 5%, but of course we had 5% unemployment for you know 18 months or more, and there was no evidence of wage inflation. In fact, it was the exact opposite. Yeah, Economists started um, tearing their hair out you know, about the fact that there was wage stagnation. So economists would say, oh, maybe 4.5 is the Nairu or whatever. But, you know, but, yeah. Yeah, I think that's super fascinating because, you know, I generally agree with that argument at the end of the first volume of Capital about the Reserve Army of Labor. But what this, your work seems to be suggesting is that you require a certain kind of policy and discursive apparatus to get that working, that it's not something that's maybe just naturally driven by the processes of capital accumulation in itself, but the state needs to regulate people and intervene in their lives and discipline them and have a moral argument to get this working. We've really seen that in, in the last decade. So that's that's fascinating. So, look, we're coming close to about an hour and I have to get back to my gainful employment. Um, now, there's a lot of discussion at the moment about, you know, we're facing... Um, first, you know, Australia was probably heading towards a recession before um, the pandemic. The pandemic has certainly worked as a catalyst or also just compelled a greater crisis. You know, the IMF is talking about a situation like a world depression and people are looking back on the post-war period as a model of inspiration about what social struggles and states can do to develop a different kind of capitalism. Um do you think there's much value in looking back at that period and saying there's things we can take out of that and apply now? Or are the, the situations so different different that the analogy just falls apart? Look, I think um, at a broad sense, yes, you know, World War Two was a crisis and there was a promise that we come out of it on the other side uh, in a better way than we went in. Okay, the pandemic's a crisis. And there's, I notice in my Twitter feed that Stuart McIntyre's history of post-war reconstruction, which is called Australia's Boldest Experiment, is coming up a lot. It was published about four or five years ago, and I read it at the time because it overlapped with my own interest, and I remember thinking, oh, this is a bit brave, though, of University of New South Wales Press to take a book that's basically around policy formulation and policy implementation and dress it up some kind of sexy paperback but you know cometh the moment come cometh the moment cometh the book that is about three times but, longer um, than anything what i think the published. difference is uh, two things as i said <laughs> world war ii was actually a time of full employment 
that was the nature of the crisis. As I said, households suffered lots of other privations due to rationing and so on, but you know they were cashed up. What we're seeing now is your more classic recession. There are people being stood down, they're losing jobs, businesses are going under, casuals aren't having their shifts renewed, but it's overwhelmed by this health crisis. You know, the typical Keynesian response to the fact that the hospitality industry, the tourism industry, the arts and entertainment industry and lots of retail is going under would be to put cash in people's pockets so they can go out and spend it in those sectors. But of course, the last thing we want now is for people to go out booking airline tickets or going to a pub or going to a sporting match. So what we're seeing in the short term, I think, isn't a stimulus kind of thing it's a it's a bailout and safety net thing now that might mean that households will come out of the end of this with a bit more cash in their pockets than they would have had we relied on a patently inadequate um, new start payment and if we hadn't done job keeper um, but as I said Scott Morrison has said he wants a snapback so as I said progressive things can be snapped back we saw that with women's pay in World War Two. And we might see it with, as I said, free childcare and a generous job seeker allowance at the end of this. And the other thing is that uh, Daniel Rogers wrote a great book called Atlantic Crossings about how the United States progressives in the first few decades of the 20th century um, learnt a lot from the English and continental welfare states such that when the Depression came, they were able to pull off the shelf a whole lot of progressive policies that then informed Roosevelt's New Deal. And you finally got something resembling a, a welfare state in the United States. Now, I think now the question is, well, who has the policies on the shelf ready to be dusted off? And my great fear, and this is speaking as a labour lawyer in particular, is that business have a lot of plans in the bottom of the drawer that they're are starting to pull out and say, okay, this is a moment of crisis, our time has come. And I think we're seeing that with regard to the Fair Work Act Definitely. and the Enterprise Bargaining Agreement. So I think crisis is a time for opportunity, but whose opportunity is is the big yeah. question at the moment. Yeah, that's, that's a really important point. And you can really see the sides kind of mobilising their forces ready for the end of the pandemic, but also beginning to throw things out now. I think what it also triggers my mind to think about is what often gets lost in a Keynesian influence discussion is the is remembering how important profit is to capitalism, that it's not just demand, but it's profitability. And so business are beginning to push for things that will guarantee, or well not guarantee, or help push the arrow or push the weights towards profitability and having a strategy that's just about oh, we can solve things by increasing demand really kind of misses this key, the key driving force of a capitalist economy. Hey, John, was there anything else that you wanted to ask before we need to wrap up soon? Oh, look, there's a lot of other things I'd like to, <laughs> I'd like to talk about. I mean, I was just thinking about uh, talking about interesting books we've we come across. I mean, um, there's a book by Amy Offner called Sorting Out the Mixed Economy, which, is, uh, which I, I haven't read fully, but I listened to an interesting podcast about it. She's um, making this argument that the neo that neoliberalism, the ideologies of neoliberalism, emerge in these welfare states in the 50s and the 60s. So I'm really interested that this discussion seems to be going in that direction. And then in Australia, we can also see that neo neoliberalism seems to be um, 
the, the ideologies and ideas of, of, of neoliberalism are emerging in this era, but I think it's also what's something we didn't really talk about, but it also shows, I guess, the laborist, workerist, the workerist tradition, if you want to call it, within labor, which has always valued people who are employed, like and the, this dignity of work idea, which you get out of blue labor and other sorts of field, or they're kind of Australian sycophants. Um, you know, like, so that that's quite interesting as well. Another thing I'd like to have talked about before I don't really have time is how Indigenous people factor into this, because your discussion of that in the book um, is really interesting as well. And there was an article in the conversation by a, a friend of the show, Francis Markham, who's arguing that, you know, that particularly for Indigenous communities, that the job seeker needs to, job seeker increase needs to remain on the books because it would be the, and it would be the biggest and probably amongst the only significant increases in Indigenous um, Yeah, look, I think you're Hitler. right on all those points. And um, the trade union movement mm. has never been the greatest ally of the welfare sector. And I, you know, remember a former Minister of Social Security saying to me um, from the Hawke um, government, uh, so you can probably guess who he is, but saying to me that he was talking to a senior trade unionist about adequacy of welfare payments and poverty and that's the very senior trade unionist saying why would i be concerned with that none of my members are poor then i saw with this crisis and i think it was a bit similar with the gfc all of a sudden there's a host of trade unions saying you know oh shit if my members become unemployed next week which is likely they're going to have to um subsist on this absolutely crappy allowance you know all of a sudden it becomes a problem and they throw their weight behind, you know, and increase the job seeker allowance because it would be so wrong for currently employed people to have to subsist on that, ignoring the fact that for, you know, 25 years, lots of people have been subsisting on what's been a patently inadequate power. So I think I think the kind of the work welfare divide um is thrown into um, crisis at moments like this as well. Um, but yeah, I have been a bit shocked by some statements from um, trade unionists about you know the dignity of work and we've got to make sure that job seeker is adequate. I mean, where have you been? <laughs> Indeed, like there's a, a lot of us um, who have spent large periods of our working life. All we can dream of is getting away from work, right? Um, Anthony, is there? Anything that we haven't asked you about that you think is really important to this discussion you would you would like to bring up and, and talk about? No, look, I think I've, I've covered most of what I cover uh, wanted to cover. And um, as I said, partly it's to celebrate the 75th anniversary of the White Paper, which was May 1945. So we're, we're almost there. Oh, wow. Um, but as I said... Um, it overlaps with my wider concerns about how we construct the category of unemployment, both in terms of a statistical category, but also as a regulatory category whereby we then, um, you know, control and regulate people's behaviour when they're applying for a benefit. Um, so they do overlap. And as I said, it's nice to look nostalgically back on the white paper, um, but I don't think I'd be as nostalgic as Sally. As we've kind of teased out, there's all sorts of issues conceptually, macroeconomically and culturally with this idea of full employment. Yeah, fantastic. Now, people, I'm sure people are going to listen to this show and then they're going to want to read more of your work. How can they find it? 
Um, look, the book was published, as I said, last year. It's a you know ridiculously expensive academic hardback. I think a paperback version will be produced um, at the end of this year, but it should be in libraries, particularly academic libraries. Um, and journal articles have been produced from that. Um, so particularly with the post-war period, I had something in Labor history in 2015. Um, but, you know, by yeah. all means, people can email me. I'm just at La Trobe. Um, and on a total aside, I co-wrote a biography of Moss Cass a couple of years ago. Um, and he's a totally wild man, and you should read that as well. <laughs> okay, great. Uh, look, when I was reading your book, I, I was thinking... You know, immediately about um, friends and comrades who are involved in the struggles of the unemployed currently, who this book would be really useful for in in helping them get that long-term kind of policy history to, to fight some of the fights going on today. So I think, you know, whilst it's, you know, at academic prices, it's not simply an academic book. Hey, John, is there anything you want to, want to finish up with? No, I mean, just thanks, Anthony, for coming on the show. I mean, it's been a while. We've been kind of chatting on Twitter and, and finding ourselves in synchrony on numerous points. So it's been good to good to have this discussion. And, and yeah, like, as you said, I think um, particularly for the growing and swelling kind of unemployed workers movement, generalising this sort of knowledge is going to be really important. Yeah, think, yeah thanks very much for coming on. I hope to, listeners uh, that you've in, that. enjoyed the show. Um, you can find Anthony on, on Twitter as well. If you um, obviously ask us questions on Twitter, on Facebook and get involved. But you've been listening to Living the Dream. I hope everyone out there is staying safe and we'll talk to you again soon. So, Mr Williamson, what have you done in order to fight gainful employment since your last signing update? Fuck all! Supplied to me by the NHS Is anyone's guess how I got here? Anyone's guess how I'll go? I suck on a roll-up, pull your jeans up Fuck off, I'm going home, job seeker Job seeker So Mr Williamson what have you done in order to find gainful employment since your last signing on date? Fuck all! I sat around the ass wanking and I want to know why you don't serve coffee here. My signing on time's supposed to be ten past eleven. It's now twelve o'clock and some of you strange bastards need executing. Mr Williamson, your employment history looks quite impressive. I'm looking at three managerial positions you previously held with quite reputable companies. Isn't this something you'd like to go back to? 
Nah, I just end up fucking robbing the place. You got a till full of twenties looking at you all day. Well, I'm only gonna fucking bank it. I got drugs to take and a mind to break. Job seeker, can a strong bow on my mess? Desperately clutching on to a leaf-long depression Supplied to me by the NHS It's anyone's guess how I got here Anyone's guess how I'll go I suck on a roll-up, pull your jeans up Fuck off, I'm going home, job seeker Job seeker Job seeker Job seeker Job seeker Job seeker